Last week we kicked off a new series called I Am He. And the idea behind this series was really very straightforward. We felt like God was, well, I specifically felt like God was calling us to really focus in on our salvation and to to get our mind a little bit better around what our salvation is. Because a lot of times, uh, how we view it affects how we live. And so if we have just a really shallow view of what our salvation is, we will live very shallow lives. And so it's so important that we understand our salvation. And so as we were studying, or as I was studying specifically, I just kept coming across scripture after scripture, which indicated to me that there was a bigger issue that we needed to deal with. That in order to better understand our salvation, we needed to better get our mind around who our God is and what he is like. And as we understand that, we'll have a better view, a more well-rounded view of what our salvation is. That these two are just so tied together. It's no small thing that God named his son, Yahweh is salvation. If you know Yahweh, then you will better understand and know your salvation. And so this series just kind of birthed from that, I am he, Last week, we talked about the fact that, that, um, uh, that there is an aspect of God that a lot of times we just kind of shelve, especially during polite conversation. That there is a side of God that we often don't talk about at dinner parties because of the fact that it's not fun to talk about the fact that our God is as perfect in justice and judgment and wrath as he is in his love and his mercy and in his grace. He is perfect in his love and his mercy and his grace, but that's necessary because of the fact that he is also perfect in his justice and in his judgment and in his wrath. And if we remove that understanding of who our God is, then again, our salvation gets really paper thin. What I mean by that is, If we think that God is just saving us from one or two aspects of of maybe sin or the enemy, then it gets really thin and we miss out on the fact that God is first saving us from himself. Amen, 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 Pastor Allen. Right? Yeah, not many amens because this isn't something we often talk about. It's definitely not something that you lead with in a conversation in, in the kids' Sunday school class in kindergarten, right? Like, this is a part, though, of understanding who our God is. And I think too many times we stay in that kindergarten Sunday school class instead of growing up in our faith and understanding that all of this is who our God is and all of this, then, uh, is a part of what our salvation is. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. The fact that, yes, he saves us from the flames but he is also the consuming fire. The everlasting burnings is what Isaiah 33 verse 14 says. He is the God who is perfect in his justice and in his wrath. But then James chapter 2 verse 13 says, mercy triumphs over justice or over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That he does not wait for us to call to him, but he calls first to us. So last week we talked about our God is I am he who calls. 
I am he who calls. This week, we're going to be talking about I am he who stands alone. I am he who stands alone. My hope is that as we get to know a God who is so much more powerful, so much more majestic, so much more full of glory and majesty, that we will have a better idea of what he has done for us. I am he who stands alone. If you haven't done it yet, grab your Bibles. Uh, Once you have your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah chapter 43. This morning, Isaiah 43. If you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats. If you'd reach over and grab one, if you do get one of the church Bibles, it'll be on page 603. If you haven't done it yet, also grab your phone, open it up to praise.fyi, tap on message notes there. You'll find all of the scriptures we're going to be reading through this morning, as well as an opportunity for you to take notes. When you get your Bible, if you haven't done it yet, open up to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 is excellent for a couple of reasons, as we mentioned last week. Not only does Jesus mean Yahweh is salvation, so does Isaiah. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. If we could find a way to go to Joshua, I'd go there too, because guess what Joshua means? Yahweh is salvation. How many times in Scripture does God tie his name to salvation? A lot, okay? And there's a reason for that, because this is the central issue of Scripture. This is why we brought up John chapter 8, verse 24. Unless you believe, Jesus said, I am he, you will die in your sins. That's where we were last week. If you missed it, go back and pick it up. We're going to start in, John, or in Isaiah 43, and then we'll jump over to John and read a story about Jesus, and then we'll come back to Isaiah 43. So it'll be a Jesus-John sandwich, okay? Isaiah chapter 43, we're going to start reading in verse 10. Isaiah 43 is so good because it was written to a people who are surrounded by a culture who misunderstands who God is and who is God. And as a result, there's a lot of confusing messaging uh, about who God is, kind of pressing against the people of God. And so in the midst of that, God reveals in Isaiah 43, here's who I am. And three times in Isaiah 43, he says, I am he. So we're going to come back over and over to Isaiah 43. We're going to start reading in verse 10. Here's what it says. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. If you didn't hear it, the reason why he chose us is in order that we will know him, believe him, and understand who he is. I am he. And he keeps going. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Our God stands alone. If you read, if you go to praise.fyi and you look at the bottom of the message notes, You'll see there a bunch of community group questions. So this is a shameless plug for community groups. If you haven't done it yet, you can also sign up at praise.fyi to be a part of those community groups. Um, But there every week is, is posted the community group questions so you can be thinking through those ahead of time. As you go into those community groups, then you can be really just kind of zeroed in on Jesus every single week. And, and then at the bottom of that, if you look this week, there's a, a, a group of passages that are, if you want to study this idea deeper, 
okay? And those are mostly passages that all include the phrase, I am he, in them. What you could do if you wanted is you could go this week and read those verses and start paying attention to some of the things that you see over and over and over again in them. Let me tell you what you'll find. At least one of the things you'll find is this. When God says, I am he, he is very specifically declaring who he is over and against other gods. Okay, when he says, I am he, over and over you'll see that he is declaring, here is who I am, you're confused because you think someone else is God. Okay, and that's what he's doing in Isaiah chapter 43 as well. Here he says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Here's why this is important. Because some of the messaging that you and I receive every single day is that God is in the rearview mirror. That we have somehow gone beyond him. That he, we're past God. As if he's no longer necessary. We've grown beyond the need for God. That's what we get regularly. Whether you know it or not, you are regularly receiving that message. God is in the rear view mirror. And yet, and yet, in spite of the fact that you get that messaging, and I'm not just talking about the culture in the United States, I'm talking about worldwide, like this is the messaging that you're getting all over the place. In spite of that, we still, as a culture, as a world, bow our knee before a God. Whether they say it or not, it is true. And I've been reading a lot about this and, and um, uh, a lot of scholars talking about this. And I would say, based on those things, this is just my opinion, I would say the God that we are bowing knee before today is the God called tolerance. Here's the thing about that God. Tolerance is a beautiful thing. In the right context. When you have a centrally whole, held belief system, ethic system, and value system that vast majority of people hold, then tolerance is love for those who deviate from that value system and belief system. Okay? It's just love for those who are different, and it's understanding, listen, this person, we can still love them in spite of the fact that they're not exactly like me. But what happens when you remove that centrally held value and ethics system is that tolerance is no longer about deviating from that norm, but it becomes the supreme good. It becomes God. And I've noticed something about the God called tolerance. He is an incredibly jealous God. He is incredibly intolerant of those who do not properly bend their knee to him. And so people say to you, oh, God is in the rearview mirror, but they are still bowing their knee before a different God. Here's what this passage says. Before me, no God was formed, and there will be no God after me. Okay? So if you believe that this is true, then you cannot go beyond him, 
And it is not possible for him to only show up in the rearview mirror. The best we can do is close our eyes to the reality of him. And that's actually what's happening. I am God who stands alone, he says. And he continues on. If we could stop there. That would have been a great sermon. Just done. Amen. Praise the Lord. Go home. All right, Isaiah 43, though, he continues on. He says, Before me no God was formed, and after me, and there shall not be any after me. He continues, verse 11, I, I am the Lord. Now let me tell you what's not happening here. God is not stuttering. He really wants us to grasp what he's about to say. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, There is no Savior. If you recognize that you need salvation, you got one path, and that's me. That's what he's saying here. He continues on, and this is my favorite part in all of Isaiah 43. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. I declared and saved and proclaimed. That is beautiful. When I was a teenager in high school, I was dating this girl. She was sweet. She was cute. And her dad scared the living daylights out of me. As sweet and as cute as she was, he was the opposite, okay? He was a firefighter. And I always pictured him as the one who they would send into the building ahead of time to hold it up. Does that make sense? While they put out the fire? This, I mean, legitimately, he didn't have to answer the door with a shotgun. He just rolled up his sleeves and his guns were fully on display. This was her dad, right? And he knew he was intimidating and he just let it be, okay? We never really connected, he and I. I don't know why that was, but we never really connected. Well, late in the relationship, after we'd been dating for a little bit, he, this firefighter, invited me one day to play softball on the firefighter softball team. Okay. They were short one guy. And so he said, hey, could you play on our team? And I, I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I'll do it. Okay. It was the game between the firefighters and the police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So no pressure, right? Like, it's not like this is for bragging rights all year long, but it was. It was slow pitch softball. And I am so incredibly intimidated. So I step up to the plate right? First time. And I don't think I'd ever played soft, slow-pitch softball before. And, and I'm like shaking a little bit, and I know they're all watching, and, and all of the fighter fighters are like sitting over there watching me, and they pitch the ball, and I clock it. I mean, it goes. And those guys are maybe bigger than me, but my knees are better than theirs, and so I could run faster, and I got a triple first time, right? I know. Praise the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Never happened again, but that day it did, all right? It was a great day, and I'm like looking over at her. I'm like, how you doing? And she's like, how you doing? And it was great, fantastic. So I get up again, and at this point I'm feeling pretty good about myself because those balls are like so slow, right? Like it's like, and so this time 
I pull the Babe Ruth. I point out to left field, which is awesome in slow pitch softball. I'm just saying, all right? So I'm not exaggerating this in the least. This legitimately happened. I point out to left field, and I pull back again, and I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and he's over there. But I'm not shaking this time. I got it, you know? And the ball comes in, and I crank it. I hit it as hard. I feel it. I know the ball hit good contact, and I watch as it goes straight up in the air and comes right back down. And the pitcher is sitting there like this. He didn't even move. He's just like, out. And we broke up shortly thereafter. I don't know what the deal was. Um, but that's, that's what happened. I wonder if they're tied. Man, uh, here's the problem. I can't call my shots. But here's what God just said. I declared it, and then I saved you, and then I proclaimed it. I called my shots. I told you exactly how it was going to happen, and then I did it. And then afterwards, I told you again. He is the only God who can do that. Because here's the thing. The enemy will lie to you and make it seem like he knows what happens tomorrow and what happens next year. He has no idea. He's as in the dark as we are. There is only one who sees the end from the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega. Our God stands alone. I would keep reading, but I want to save the rest of that for next week. Instead, let's jump over to John chapter 18. I want to show you in the New Testament what this looks like. John chapter 18, we're going to start reading in verse 1. This is Jesus talking here. This is on the night where he is betrayed and he is arrested. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. It's really interesting here, but back in chapter 14, verse 31, it says that they get up and they head out of the house that they were in for the Last Supper. Between chapter 14, verse 31, and chapter 18, verse 1, it seems like they're in Jerusalem heading on their way out as Jesus is talking, which would be really very interesting because that means if they are where it says they are at this point, that chapter 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays, could very well have been prayed on the Temple Mount, which I think would be absolutely beautiful. We don't know for sure, but somehow between chapter 14 and verse 31 and chapter 18, verse 1, they are walking through Jerusalem. By the time they get to verse 1 of chapter 18, they're walking out the walls, and they're headed down through the Kidron Valley and then up the other side, the Mount of Olives, where they stop, it says, in a garden... It says they enter in, so it kind of gives the impression that this Garden of Gethsemane, this olive press garden, was actually walled in around. So it's kind of safe, I guess you could say, but they head into this garden. It does say that they come here regularly, and that's how Judas knew that they would be there. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there 
with his disciples. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So a couple things we should point out here, and it's important just for the sake of context so you know what's going on. When it says that he procured some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, the word that's used here, it's, it's like temple um, police, temple uh, uh, like guards, temple, I guess you could even say like the temple's soldiers, okay? So they've got this group of people that have come from the temple, those who are protecting that Rome allows them to keep, in order to keep the peace in the temple, that group of people are there. But it also says that he comes with a band of soldiers. Now, when it says that, these, the word that's used here is something that is only used for Roman soldiers. Okay? And it's actually a technical term, that word band. It's a technical term which means a cohort, which is the technical term is 760 foot soldiers and 240 cavalry, okay? So if it actually was a cohort, it would have been a thousand people. Now for the Jewish people, every year at Passover, of course, they're all showing up in Jerusalem. You get a bunch of people together, you're asking for trouble. And so every year, the Romans would take the people, the Roman soldiers who were stationed out near the sea in Caesarea, and they would bring them in and station them in Jerusalem in the Tower of Antonia, which overlooks the Temple Mount. Just because they wanted to be prepared in case something dumb happens, which it often did. So, possibly, they could have had the full complement of a cohort. Probably that's not the case. Instead, most likely, verse 12, if you skip down to verse 12, it says, so the band of soldiers, the cohort of soldiers, and their captain. Now, the captain or the commander of a thousand um, was, was called the Chiliarchos. He was the commander of that 760 plus 240. So, most likely, the reason why it calls them that cohort was that the commander was there with them, Okay? But it's at least a large enough force that it required that that commander, that captain, be there. So many scholars believe that it's as much as 250 Roman soldiers who are headed out to arrest Jesus on that night. And then also some soldiers from the temple, as if the 250 wouldn't have been enough. And it says they go with their lanterns and their torches and their weapons, lanterns and torches. It is Passover, so they've got a full moon that night. Why are they bringing along all these lanterns and torches? Because they are expecting that Jesus will hide. They are expecting him to crawl into a cave somewhere, or a hole somewhere, and they will have to root him out. So they bring along their lanterns and their torches. And if he doesn't hide, possibly they'll fight back. So they not only bring their lanterns and their torches, they also bring their weapons and head out to arrest Jesus. Verse 4. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Does that phrase say it all to you? Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. He's not in the dark here. He's not unsure of where this heads. He knows exactly where it In fact, he knows better than anybody that night what would happen to him. And he knows the eternal ramifications of it. He knows all that would happen to him. And what does he do? He came forward. The actual language is he stepped forth. He didn't go and hide. He didn't try to fight. He knew where it was headed, and he stepped right into it. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? This is the exact same phrase that is used at the beginning of John in John chapter 1 when he calls his first disciples. Where they're following him and he turns around, I'm not going to go read it, turns around and he looks at them and he says, what is it you're searching for? Same words though. There it's, what are you searching for? Here, who are you seeking? What are you looking for? I think it's the most important question that Jesus ever asks of us. What is it that you are looking for? What is it that you are seeking What are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Verse 5. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now the actual language there is just I am. Ego eimi. Ege eimi, actually. I am. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, and I agree with him 100%, you cannot say that Jesus is just a good man. Either he is God, because he is claiming very clearly here that he is God, or he is crazy. One or the other. Right? You can't take it in the middle road. It's not possible. It doesn't work. Either he's crazy or he's God. He says here, I am he. He is very clearly calling on the Old Testament and saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. He says, I am he, and here's what's happened. When Jesus said to them, or sorry, Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, let me tell you what that's not. That is not the first guy steps back and hits the next guy and they fall over like dominoes. Okay? The actual words here are incredibly violent. They are thrown backwards and end up on their back when he reveals, I am he. Benny Hinn got nothing on Jesus. (laughs) I am he, and they all end up on the ground. Why is that? Because our God stands alone. So he gives them another shot. So he asks them again. 
Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me. So that means three times in this passage it talks about seeking. And three times in this passage it says over and over, I am he. He is very clearly making a statement. And he is very clearly talking about what is it that we're seeking. This is the most important question that is ever posed to us by Jesus. What are you looking for? Because I am actually it. What are you seeking? I am he. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Take me, leave them. Take me, let them be. Take me, not them. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, which is, by the way, first time in John where Jesus' word is talked about being fulfilled the same way Scripture is talked about being fulfilled. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken when he said, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I declared it, and then I saved you, and now it's proclaimed. Called my shots, told you what was going to happen, And then I did it, and now I'm telling you about it. This is so that he would lose not one, just as he had spoken. Verse 10. And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now if I was Jesus at that point, I would have turned back to them and said, Never mind, take him. (laughs) Because, like, Peter's really not getting it here, right? And he says, do I have to explain this to you again? In Matthew 26, verse 52, he says, listen, I told you about this before. He said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you live by your own strength, you're going to die by your own strength, right? And quite honestly, Peter... I don't need you to save me. I'm here to save you. And I think sometimes we are just like Peter. Somebody in your culture says, oh, God's in the rearview mirror. So we whip out that sword and start lopping off ears. God does not need you or me to prop him up. Our God stands alone. And so what does Jesus do? He heals Malchus's ear. And I'm so glad for Malchus. I'm glad he's able to hear out of both sides. I mean, that's such a big deal, but I don't think that's why Jesus did it. What happens to Peter if Jesus doesn't heal Malchus's ear? Right? Worst case scenario, he's dead on the spot. Best case scenario, they arrest him and he's dead a day later, right? Like, this is for Peter. Jesus steps up again and saves him again. And yet, after it's all said and done, Jesus steps forward 
knowing all that would happen, and stands alone. I want to flip back to Isaiah 43. Because there in Isaiah 43, there's one more passage I want to read, which really speaks to what actually happens in John chapter 18. Isaiah 43, and we'll read in verse 25. I think John chapter 18 says it all. And we could stay there for a while longer. I want to save some of it for next week. And so we'll show up there again next week. But this really concisely shows what's happening. You see Jesus standing alone. Nobody can stand in his presence. You see him saying, take me, not them. You see him saving those who quite honestly don't deserve it. Verse 25. I, I am he. Yet again, God is not stuttering. What he is doing is he is drawing attention to what he is about to say. And he very clearly says to us, catch this. Don't miss this point. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Then he continues, verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Part of what I love about Isaiah 43 is if you actually read through the whole thing, it's beautiful, and it's hilarious, and it's gorgeous poetry, all at the same time. The image is this. All through Isaiah 43, you see this image of a courtroom. And God says to them over and over through this, you are my witnesses, talking about the people of Israel. And he says, Let's see the other God's witnesses. And you know what he says? He says, all their witnesses are blind. Let me tell you what you don't want in a courtroom for an eyewitness. If you listen to Isaiah 43, this is the image that he uses. Okay? says they bring out all their witnesses but all of their witnesses cannot see and this is who is witnessing for those gods he says now you prove your case he says put me in remembrance remind me let us argue together Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. He says, all right, now you make your case. But here's the problem. The very foundation of it is rotten. Because here's the issue. Your first father sinned. See, the problem isn't that one or two or... 
Maybe if you're more self-deprecating, three or four sins that you can count on your fingers and point out as your sins. The problem is, your first father sinned. And that sinfulness has been handed down all the way to you. The problem isn't the few sins that you might say, this is what I need saved from. The problem is, at a very core level, each and every one of us is inherently sinful. You don't need salvation from the two sins. You need salvation from sin itself. So he says to them, the problem is your first father sinned. You want to try to make a case before me? You can't do it because the foundation is rotten. said, okay, bring some mediators. The very best of you. What does it say? They've all transgressed against me. Why is it that no one can stand in his presence? Because we are all sinful and he is totally holy. So the best we got, if we bring the best of humanity and put them before God, even they have transgressed. No priest can save you. No pastor can save you. None of them. They've all failed. So what in the world do we do? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. There is only one who can stand. And that's God. And you see it all in Jesus in John chapter 18. No one stands in his presence because he is totally holy. And when that moment comes, he steps right into it. And he says, take me, not them. And he called it all in Isaiah 43. I'm calling my shots This is what I'm going to do. I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. None of you can stand. But I will. And I will stand alone. I am he who stands alone. And he's the only one who could. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. We don't just need salvation from our God of justice and wrath. We need salvation from the very core of sinfulness inside of us, and yet none of us can make a case to stand before him. And the best mediators we've got, we've all transgressed. And so, for his own sake, he blotted out our transgressions. Because Jesus stepped into what he could have hidden from. And believe me, if he had wanted to hide, they would not have found him. And if he had wanted to fight, their weapons would have done nothing. 
he would not be bound unless they let him. He steps into it. And why do you think he flexes his muscle anyways? I am he, they all go flat. Just so we know who's in control of this thing. I am he who stands alone. And we all need it. Not one of us can do it apart from him. Because our first father sinned. And our very best have also transgressed. And so only God could do it. And that's exactly what he did. He stood alone for us. This is our salvation. This is what our God did. Man, don't try to earn it. Don't think that you and your own strength can make it happen. And don't feel like you can prop up God even if you wanted to. He stands alone. And everybody who would say otherwise, hate to break it to you, they're blind witnesses. They have closed their eyes to reality. So don't go lopping off their ears. They got to have something, okay? If you're in here and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, man, first, you need him. Because you cannot stand before God. And we will all be in that courtroom. (laughs) We will all, at some point, we will stand in that courtroom. And if we are not standing in Christ Jesus, then we will fall away. But that's all by his grace. It is all by his mercy. And it's all through Jesus Christ. I am he who stood alone. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And if you're in here and you have not yet confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus would say to you, I called my shots and then I saved you and now I'm proclaiming it. His word is really very clear on this fact. We need salvation from the God of wrath and justice. And we need salvation from the fact that each and every one of us is inherently sinful. We need to be saved from that. And that can only happen in Jesus Christ. So if you're in here and you have not confessed him as Lord, he says, I, I am Lord. Apart from me, besides me, there is no Savior. There's no other hope. If you realize you need salvation, you got one avenue. And that's Jesus. So if you're in here and you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have an opportunity today to do that. Today is the day of your salvation. I don't know when you will stand before God. I don't know when I will stand before God. But I know when that day comes, the only way I can is in Christ Jesus my Lord. And so, don't walk away for the opportunity to stand in Jesus Christ your Lord. Because on that day, you don't want to stand alone. So as I pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to confess him as Lord. And I'm going to pray, give you an opportunity, as it says in Romans, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you can be saved. And if you're in here right now, then 
I can't make that happen. It's only Jesus. And that means his heart, his Holy Spirit has already been working on your heart. It's not something, this is fresh to you. You came today expecting this. You came whether you knew it or not because he was calling you here. His word sped ahead and called you. So if you're in here right now and that's you, don't miss this opportunity. He always gives us the opportunity to choose. And this morning is your opportunity. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come, the most important issue is what do we do with Jesus? John chapter 8, verse 24 says, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's really very clear. In John chapter 13, he says, When I am lifted up, then you will know that I am he. When I'm on that cross and you look at me there, you'll see that I am God. You'll see that I am who I said I was. And this morning, God, we all have an opportunity again to receive you as Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I pray that no one would go quickly from this place without interacting with and dealing with this question. What am I looking for? What am I seeking? Because you said, I am he. (laughs) I'm what you're looking for. Oh God, right now, I pray you would bring us to that point. And each of us have an opportunity to confess with our mouth. Not not internally, not, not in our minds, but confess with our mouth. To speak it out. Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Jesus is Lord, none other. He is Lord and He alone. To believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead, I believe it fully, totally, completely today. Because I know that no one can stand in your presence. You stand alone. And yet, we can stand in Christ Jesus on that last day. And so I pray right now that you by your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts and there would be those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord of their, of their lives and, and believe in their hearts that you raise him from the grave, that the scriptures are true of him and that they would be saved. And Father, I pray that you would speak to all of us this morning because the overwhelming pressure from our culture is of a God who is not our God. The overwhelming pressure of our culture is that we've gone beyond God. We've grown beyond our need of him. He's in the rearview mirror. And you say, there was none formed before me, and there will be none after me. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to stand in the midst of that culture. Be faithful, but just to trust that you are God. To not believe that messaging in the name of Jesus, I ask. I thank you for it. And I ask it all in your name, Jesus. The only name. Our only Savior. Our only Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you're in here and you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord this morning, confess him as Lord for the very first time. Instead of heading out, would you take this opportunity to step out and come down to the front. Our prayer team would love to pray with you this morning and kind of talk to you about the next steps. This is so vitally important that we get right, and so we want to just talk you through that and walk you through that and then also pray with you. If you need prayer for anything else, they would love to pray with you this morning as well, and they've committed themselves to pray with you all week long.
Thank you so much for joining us this week. Make sure to be back next week for the very last week of I Am Key. God bless you today.